Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Uh, I know I'm dealing with an observant Jewish crowd, so you see when I walk through the neighborhood, and uh, sometimes I walk with this person or that person, but once in a while I go myself, and when I go myself, believe it or not, I think. And uh, it came to me, it came to me, I promise not to do it too often, they say the, uh, it came to me the, just in a, about a, two months ago or something like that, because I know that the Israel thing was coming to an end, and I was thinking, I don't know why, I was thinking about a story, just like in a flash, I said, let's do something about the people who composed the past, because you don't know, and I don't know what really happened. We weren't there. There's no YouTube. So we can only depend on the chroniclers and the historians. So who are they? And a book has the kind of uh, um, physical uh, image that sounds like this is objective. And we know nothing is objective. I mean, a person wrote it. Okay? So right off the bat, history is a subjective discipline, and yet it's not just a fantasy, we hope. Uh, there is such a thing called novels, and that's good too. You know, that's, that has its place. But then there's something we try to say, but what, what really happened? And that's much more tricky to get at. And uh, right off the bat, um, I just thought of two or three names, Josephus and one of the others. And I said, let's do a thing on that. And, um, so, so I, and these are seven of my favorite historians. And I don't really mean favorite, favorite, you know, people that I kind of like. Just because someone wrote a history book doesn't mean that you like them. Sometimes they're jerks, right? And sometimes, sometimes they're bad people. Uh, there are many Jewish historians who, who hate Judaism. There may, still are. There are many Jewish historians who don't like 99% of the Jewish people. It's, it's what, just because you're into a subject doesn't mean necessarily you like it. After all, not that I'm comparing the two necessarily, but someone could be an historian of ISIS and nevertheless not actually advocate what they're standing for. And, uh, and yet, am I right? There's a big debate among the historians in the academic world that someone have to have Distance from the topic that they're studying, does one have, on the contrary, to actually some kind of a sympathy to understand what they're doing? Does that affect their subjectivity or objectivity? All of which is, is interesting for people like myself. And so I figure, you know, let's just do it. And uh, I'm not going to waste any more of your time. I'll jump right into this. And we'll talk about the first of the seven people that came to my mind. I know there are other historians out there, and it can make it longer. But frankly, there's a lot of them I don't like. So these are people who are, who are interested. <laughs> The, the, well, yeah, I, I want to do this more for fun. We're all here, to, hopefully, for fun and, and to learn something while we're having fun. That makes the Baltimore a little bit unusual. As I say, we have uh, some enlightened people here and, and benefactors and others. So without any further ado, let's talk about the lecture series of seven Jewish historians. The first lecture, which is, uh, first lecture which will cover Flavius Josephus. And Josephus is the only Jewish historian of the classical age. Let's just start with that. History is not a Jewish thing. Isn't that funny? We are the ultimate historic people. If you ever think about it, Judaism is nothing but an interpretation of history. Everything comes out of that, whether belief in God, the way you believe in God or not, or things like that. It all matter whether you subscribe to a particular version of the past. Maybe you've never thought about that before. Orthodox Judaism and Gedoli Tover never write of Judaism as an historic phenomenon, but that's what it is. Okay, it's kind of obvious. Either there wasn't Avram Yitzhak, Moshe, and Shalom, or there wasn't. Either, to be more direct, either there wasn't Maimon Harsinai, and that's a historical event, or it's a fantasy, or it's a, or it's a myth. 
there are very profound consequences that flow from which particular attitude you take on, on, on the veracity of that particular chain of events in history. And yet it's kind of funny. We know the from world, the Shiva world, so to speak, has always sort of purposefully uh, felt very uncomfortable with history. It doesn't really get into it. Even today is not uh, comfortable with it, only writes because people are writing other things on the blogs. You know, that, 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 that sort of thing. And yet, on the other hand, everybody goes crazy when we found the picture of the Chavetz Chaim on the internet. You see? And so we're pulled in two different uh, directions. Um, in ancient times, as I say before, Jews didn't, weren't interested in history in the sense of trying to understand the, the, the uh, meaning of the past in terms of human causality. On the contrary, the Torah is written in a meta-historic fashion, as I'll try to argue in a minute. But uh, uh, history books, this king did this, and that one did that, and the reason it happened was for this, that, and the other, and these are the uh, um, you know, underlying cause. Eh, that wasn't a Jewish sort of thing. So it's not surprising that there's one person, only through a crazy set of circumstances, named Josephus, who uh, was, the, was the only person who wrote actual history books in the classical in the Greek and Roman age. He's the only one to write a comprehensive history to Jewish people prior to the 19th century. Quite an accomplishment, whatever you want to say about him. Here's an imagined picture of Josephus, and here's one they say might be him. I doubt he doesn't look Jewish, but who knows. Uh, <laughs> so right off the bat, well, I mean, does, does he look like your son-in-law? And they, uh, they, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but, but, but that immediately is kind of funny because, hey, we're talking about somebody who's trying to get at the past, and yet he lives in guesswork. He wrote his books, Josephus, to counter the Greek and Roman historians whose portrayal of the Jews were full of lies and anti-Semitism. The happy news is we're not the only liars out there, right? You got guys like this with great reputations who are full of baloney, especially you can tell when they write about the origins of people they don't like, like us. And so many of the, and this is down, true down till today, to Arnold Toynbee's of the world and whatever, they write what's called the objective. It's not objective. Right now there are uh, as you know, the Jewish people are under, at this moment under particular intellectual assault all around the world, in addition to the physical assaults that we're seeing over here. And all the anti-Israel stuff is objective. And only the pro-Israel stuff, oh, it's terrible, is, is, is not accepted. Like, who, who invented that particular standard, okay? While flawed, as is the case with every history book, from or otherwise, Josephus' books are the only comprehensive Jewish narrative. That's quite a statement I just made quite different from the haphazard writings of Chazal, who are not interested in history, but in meta-history. So you're not going to be able, without Josephus, we would not be able to construct a uh, clear narrative of what happened in our ancient past, long ago, particularly in the Second Temple period, if you simply had to go by the writings of Chazal, which tell a story here, a story there, and you never know when they actually meet it, and if they care about the details, they don't care about the details. We, we use three terms. Chronicles simply are very superficial, Tales, uh, Achashverosh lived this and this years. He had so and so many provinces. Uh, he had so many children. His mother's name was this. He fought five wars. So it's just simply a, a rattling off of a color of data. They don't tell anything really about history. Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States from 1861 to 1865. Move on. <laughs> so look what you don't know. Then we have it's called meta history, which is what uh, religious people specialize in. And that is. And that is, um, why does God make things happen? Which is a different way of looking at it. Okay? So a historian will ask the question, what were the human causes of the American Civil War, for example? And they'll say, there's a slavery, 
It's the tariff, and you know, there's Missouri Compromise, and bleeding Kansas, whatever you want. A meta historian will say, why did God Almighty make it that in the middle of the 19th century, this country, America, should have to go through a tremendous bloodletting? What sin did we do? Right? To make the God wouldn't have it. And by the way, I don't know if you know your history, probably don't. Um, when the Civil War broke out, that's exactly what preachers all over the country did. And the conclusion they came to was that this country is insufficiently Christian. We don't have God's name in the Constitution of the United States, for example. And uh, this is blasphemy, and it's too secular. And they passed all kinds of amendments in state legislatures and elsewhere to uh, change that and put in God and Jesus and things like that in the uh, founding documents of the United States uh, to avert the divine wrath. Abraham Lincoln uh, fought them tooth and nail because he wasn't in favor of this idea. But even he had to yield to some degree to the overwhelming pressure. And as a result of this tremendous pressure, they started during the Civil War to put on the coins in God we trust. That's where it comes from. That was a, a compromise, you know what I mean? Uh, the, and, it, and it didn't say any particular God. Uh, but he, as, as a, as a sec, although he was a believer, as a secular person in terms of the political constitution of the United States, he didn't want to do it. This was a meta-historical argument. You understand? And then we have history in which you talk about the human causality. And I don't simply mean, I punch you, so you punch me back. But what are the economic causes? Uh, the religious causes, perhaps? The cultural causes? A historian would, would ask a very interesting question if he said, what are the reasons for ISIS? That's actually a very good question. And you couldn't give a one-line answer, correct? And that's a very pertinent thing to ask today. Journalists are just starting to ask that question because journalists aren't trained in history. They're trained in here and now, in the soundbite. And, and, and unfortunately, I think Obama is also. And consequently, well, I mean it. And so consequently, you, you, you know, America doesn't have a good record of trying to figure out you know, the historical background to things we get into. To this day, I don't think anybody understands what, what the history of Vietnam is. You know, before that, like, who knows? Nobody ever knew that sort of thing. Well, that's not very smart. Now, uh, Josephus is a historian. He doesn't claim to, he's not a chronicler. He doesn't simply tell you this and this happened. And he's not a meta-historian. He doesn't really, except maybe 1% of the time, not even that, tell you why God, you know, caused this, that, and the other. He's interested in uh, what did we Jews do, right? And more particularly, what did we Jews do wrong to bring about the total churban of our existence, which is the reality he faced in his time. He lived in the time when the temple went down and was destroyed forever, when the Jewish state was destroyed for thousands of years, when the Jewish polity was busted, when Jewish civilization cracked and, and, and has never been put back together again. And how did this happen? And was it simply a hurricane with no way of explaining it or... Were there reasons? And is it possible that we messed up? And if we're the ones that screwed up, what are the reasons? And then you can get, you know, should we repeat these reasons? Should we identify? Should we own these reasons? Or should we be like so many countries around the world We say, it's not our fault? Right? How many countries are there today? Something goes wrong. It's not our fault. It's your fault. <laughs> right? In fact, uh, the Arab world is distinguished by saying, it's never my fault. It's always your fault. Yanko, why did you make in your pants? Shimon did it. <laughs> that's, that's a, it's a culture, right? And there are consequences that flow from this culture, and you and I live with those. 
Josephus wrote his books in Rome, where he lived after the war, which ended with the Churban Beis Hamikdash and the destruction of the Jewish state. He wrote, we think, in Greek for a non-Jewish audience, or maybe not. At the time, at the time he wrote, he was getting a monthly check from Vespasian and Titus. That's how he lived. He didn't have to work. Get it? I'll say it again. He didn't have to work. He got a check. I will give you an example. Today you'd say something like he got a check in the order of ten, twelve thousand dollars a month. It's not bad money if you can get it. Okay. Um, but therefore, depending upon them for his parnasa, it's not surprising he was going to flatter them in the account of the war. His first book, The Jewish War, as we'll see, is going to be characterized by his reluctance to criticize. Oh, I wouldn't do it either. Okay? I wouldn't do it either. This is as true today as then. You don't bite the hand that feeds you. And so, not only spared his life, he, he, he was literally living off of them and living not bad either. Okay? Still, his book is not a total kiss-up job of fawning flattery of the Romans and of spitting on his own people, because then we really wouldn't be interested in it. It wouldn't have had much traction. Okay? It is a fact that the Jewish revolt, the revolt in which he lived, that ended in the Churm Beis Amigdush, was doomed from the start, at least B'der HaTeva. Ibn Chazal agree with that, both in the Talmud Bavli and more blatantly in the Ovestor of Nosson. People are angry to this day, and I know I'm speaking with a crowd that has a basic idea of what I'm talking about. Josephus is a name you never heard of until I walked in tonight. And so people say, oh, Josephus joined the Romans, and he attacked his own people, all the rest of it. The Gemara, for example, in Gittin, many will remember this, this is the sort of thing they study on, on Tishabov, and what they call the stories of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, make it very clear that they had the same opinion, the rabbis of the Gemara had the same opinion as Josephus. It says that we, I'm just quoting a little bit, that it says there were three rich guys in Jerusalem and they had enough money to, they had enough um, uh, supplies for the city to withstand the siege of 20 years. But Havalu Havi Biryoni, but they were zealots. Biryoni. Rashi describes them, Anoshim, Rekim, Upochsim, Lemochama. People are empty and overzealous for war. That's exactly what Josephus says. Okay? And Amrulu Rabbonin, the rabbis, according to the Talmudic account, said to the zealots, let's make peace with the Romans. You see, by the time this story happens, the city of Jerusalem was under siege. That means the Romans already conquered all the rest of Israel. There had already been taking place the campaign of Vespasian in the Galilee, in which he took over the whole Galilee after a siege or two. They had already taken over the entire coastline. They had already taken the Negev area south of it. They had secured the Transjordan. This is all recorded in Josephus. They had secured the areas between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. All that's left is the city of Jerusalem. Where's it going, guys? <laughs> yeah, what's, the, what's the plan? You follow? It's not a case where the Romans are over there and we're over here and we're going to prevent them. Like, thank God the state of Israel today, you know, we can keep the Arabs out of our territory. It's over. Make, let's make peace with them because we're not going to win. Okay? Again, I'm not going to use this. It's, it's, it's not the right muscle to use. But, uh, but, I'll, but I will. Yeah. Imagine the Germans in ni- March 1945. You're still fighting war. Where is it going, guys? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> What's the plan? <laughs> right? Where is it going? And so the rabbi said that. And what does the Gemara say? Amr lehu, lo shavkinu. The zealots would not allow the rabbis to make peace with the Romans. Amr lehu. So the zealots said to the rabbis, you should join us and we shall all launch one big battle against the Romans. A pitched battle against the Roman legions. 
The rabbi said, that's obviously not going to work. The whole country is now in their hands. They have a huge army ready for battle. They are specialists in battle. The Romans were the, the top professionals. I'm sure everybody knows that. The Jews are not the top professionals. It's not going to work. So the zealots, in anger, burned all the supplies that were in the city in order to force the rabbis to agree to go out and fight a pitched battle. The end of the story is they didn't do either one. Therefore, there was a terrible famine described a little bit in the Gemara in excruciating detail in Josephus, and the main sufferers were the, the, the civilians of Jerusalem. Is it the same thing? Okay? So what are you coming screaming about Josephus being a traitor? I'll give you a more vivid description of what we call the Avos Drabnason, which is a famous set of brises uh, I'm sure many have heard of. This is even more direct. Okay, When Vespasian came to, to besiege Jerusalem, to destroy it, Amr Lahem, Vespasian said to them, Shotim, idiots, Why are you out to destroy the city? It's clear that if you continue to siege Jerusalem, it'll be destroyed. Why are you trying to burn down the temple? All I want is a white flag, a symbolic surrender. Send me an arrow, as he says, or a, a bow. That was obviously the symbol at that time that we surrender. And I'll go away. In other words, the Romans will take control of Jerusalem again and all the rest of the revolt will be over. Perhaps a few of the ringleaders will be executed. Maybe, yes, maybe no, it's not clear. And, but, but Jerusalem will survive and the temple will survive. Amrulo, so the zealots replied to them, to the Romans, just as we defeated the two people that came before you, the Torah, Pharaoh, Sancheirev, you know, in the Bible, we have famous stories where we uh, we overwhelmed the enemy, so we'll do the same thing to you. When the big rabbi, Yochum and Zakai, heard this, he summoned, according to this account, the people of Jerusalem and said, He said the same thing. He said, all they want is a, is a, is a formal surrender, and then we'll be saved. And they said the same thing. No, no, no. We'll, we defeated the others, we'll kill them. And they go in to tell the story that the Romans had spies within the besieged city of Jerusalem, and the spies used to shoot out arrows containing um, intelligence, news, and uh, they said, you know, this Yochum and Zaga guy is in favor of the Romans, in favor of the peace party, which is why later on when he goes to the Romans, they, they received him uh, respectfully. You understand? So all I'm trying to tell you is, Josephus, Josephus, Josephus. It's the same, the rabbi says the same thing. And truth is, in hindsight anyway, anybody could see, once you're down to the city of Jerusalem, what is the plan, guys? Now, uh, Josephus switching in the middle of the war, to the side of the Romans, his repeated calls to his fellow Jews and besieged Jerusalem to surrender, his becoming a personal friend and staff member of Titus, even as Titus was destroying the city and the base of Megdosh, even as the Romans were massacring a million men, women, and children, all this has made Josephus hated by his fellow Jews, by many Jews anyway. I understand that, but you understand what I'm saying. As a historian, the question is, whatever you think of his character, is his history accurate? Is it persuasive? Put aside your personal prejudices, which turn out to be not so well-grounded as I just pointed out. 
And the question is, how much of what he says is true and how much of what he says isn't? To say that it's all baloney is ridiculous. To say every bit of it's true is also ridiculous. Guess what? That's true of a book coming out of Hopkins today also. It's always like that. First, let's get his biography straight. He was born 33 years prior to the destruction of Beis Hamidrash. Consider that fact. He was born in the 30s. So he's growing up in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. These are among the worst years in uh, Jewish history, as I'll explain in a minute. So he was born under the Roman occupation, as we could put it today. He's born at a time when the political system broke down. The Talmud refers to this as the 40 years prior to destruction when the Shekhinah left Israel. Okay? So in other words, wise people could see that there are bad clouds on the horizon. Um, he was born to a Yechizdika family of Kohanim. Yosef uh, This is a high-class Kohen situation. There are you know, different Mishmars, and, and, and the number one is the Yehoyarev. So he's born in Jerusalem to what we would call a highly aristocratic family. Uh, he was related to the Maccabees, to the Hashemanoim on his mother's side, who had emerged as successful conquerors, but unsuccessful rulers. Okay? So here we have the kingdom of the Hashemanoim. That's kind of impressive, this map. Because in Hanukkah, they started with nothing. Eventually, they captured Jerusalem. Eventually, through a lot of blood and wars, they withstood the attempt of the Seleucids, the Greeks, to kill them and take over the land. And once they got their base, which is around here, little by little, the successors of the Maccabee brothers expanded and reconquered the whole Conspiracy Israel. If you look at this map, this is basically the map of the 12 tribes, is it not? To be perfectly honest, it's a little bigger than the map of the 12 tribes. And so even though there was only a relatively small Jewish population, and the ruling family were these warriors, Kohanim, you know, Judah Maccabee and his relatives, the Chashmanim as they call them, um, and they definitely had their faults, but from the terms of conquering, this is pretty doggone impressive. Um, but the Chashmanim turned out to be terrible rulers, the country was horribly divided, they engaged in terrible civil wars, Jews massacred other Jews by the tens of thousands and so forth, and they sure screwed up at the time of Pompey the Great, because what happened was the Roman general Pompey showed up in the Middle East, and perhaps you, many of you will remember the two brothers were fighting and they brought him in, and next thing you know, the Romans control everything. So here we built up this huge state with a lot of wars and bloods and great um, you know, uh, sacrifice, and then they blew it in a, in a minute, and the Romans took it over. Uh, the Hashmanoim had schemed to make a comeback in the time of Julius Caesar, but it didn't work out. Perhaps you will recall that Julius Caesar fought Pompey, but without going to all the details tonight, by the time it's over, the Maccabees, the Hashemunayim, did not win out. Even though Julius Caesar was on their side, at least initially, but, uh, and he was the, the great conqueror and the hero, he won all the battles, but uh, this guy, Antipater, who's the father of uh, Herod, uh, he made it his business to get in with the Romans, and he took over. So the Hashemunayim, uh, family, the Hasmonean family, gone through a tough time uh, during the succeeding Herodian period. Uh, perhaps some of you will remember that Gemara says anybody says they come from the Hashemonim is, a, is, a, uh, is an Evid. It's not exactly true, but it means the direct line. The cousins they had, and Josephus is from the cousins. That's, that's interesting uh, by itself. So Israel went through some pretty bad times. By the time Josephus was born, it was Roman Judea under the procurators. All right? So Herod got this kingdom, but then we move to the next map, and this is, so Romans broke all this up on purpose. This they gave to a relative of Herod, this they kept directly for themselves, 
this they gave to another relative, this they gave over to let the Greeks rule by themselves, and so forth, because the Roman rule, which is always the wise rule, is divide and conquer, divide and impera. So after a lot of little different Jewish states and all fighting with each other, they won't have time to gang up and go against Rome. So uh, that's what it was. By the time Josephus was born, the Hashmonaim relatives were no longer persecuted, but it was a crazy era with Jewish frustration resulting in numerous and weird sects and messiahs. This is the only period of Jewish history like that until maybe today. The, uh, <laughs> the, 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 you know, throughout our history, uh, every once in a while, you, you'll have uh, somebody come up and say, I'm the Shia. But in the time I'm talking about, uh, there were dozens of them. And Josephus records them, by the way. That's the main place we know about them. One of the big arguments against Christianity is that he mentions this guy who claimed to be Messiah, and that claim to be Messiah makes no mention whatsoever of Jesus, which has driven the Christians crazy ever since then and led a number of monks uh, in the Middle Ages to stick in an extra paragraph or two and say, no, Jesus was there, he was the real thing, and all the rest of it. And ever since then, we have these big battles among all the professors down to today about what they call the Testimonium Flavianum, Flavian Joseph. Josephus' testimony about, the, about Jesus, is it true or is it not true? And you'll be shocked to hear that all the Christian guys say it's true and all the Jewish guys say it's not true. You know, um, That's roughly the case. But you, but you can Google it. Right? You can Google testimony of Flaviano. If that turns you on, or better yet, Josephus and Jesus, just Google it, you'll see, you'll see all the business. Um, but it's bothering them, because here's the guy who's recording everything, he makes no mention about the new, new religion, and he mentions every stupid little sect and religion that popped up at that time. Sevas Tutsuch. So the point is that, um, very briefly, the Romans controlled Israel. The Jews couldn't stand it, especially the younger generation. They said, this can't be the end of the Hanukkah story. We built a glorious state and everything fell apart. Now we're under the Romans. The Romans don't look like they're going anywhere. Uh, this is a, a, a horrible uh, reality. And um, the older and wiser people saw like this, turn the other cheek, there's no choice. Uh, sometimes you have to live under foreign occupation. That's how it goes. They weren't built that way. Young people are young people. It's totally understandable. And among them arose, uh, like it happens in Israel at this very moment, don't we have uh, these stupid little groups that are blowing up churches and putting graffiti, place the price tags and things like that. It's terrible what's going on in Israel now, right? And because they're, they're growing up in the West Bank and they, and, and they have no education and they're, and they're young and hotheads. And they don't want to hear what anybody else has to say. And if you say this is going to lead to World War III, they say good. You understand? And that's exactly what's going on in Josephus' time. And uh, therefore, people said the following. Maybe we cannot defeat the Roman Empire uh, naturally, but we can supernaturally. We may not be able to do a Beder HaTeva, but if God is on our side, just as with our ancestors throughout the biblical period and through the Hashemunayim, the Maccabees, he gave Rabin biad ma'atim utmeim ba'at horim. I'm all in favor of Hanukkah, but I wouldn't necessarily tell somebody to go into battle hoping for a miracle. You understand? Uh, that's not a good military strategy. You do the best you can and then hope that God should prosper you. But you don't go in the Rachila saying it's three of us against the Russian army, but we're going to win. You see? Uh, but that's what they did. And so what happened was, it's perfectly understandable, that among the young, this guy popped up here and that guy popped up there. And each one said like this, it's true we cannot take on Rome, but God appeared to me in a dream and says, you, young man, are different. And you are destined to lead the Jews in a victorious war against the Romans and it'll shock everybody, it'll be like Hanukkah again. And every time somebody claims to Mashiach, Jewish history confirms what I'm about to tell you. Every time somebody, stupid or not, claims to be Mashiach, he will get a number of followers. Right? If I stood up here and sound the Mashiach, I will get a couple of followers. At least I hope. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, all the people who now who say they don't think so, they'll be the first one to sign up. The, uh, 
That's what, that's what history confirms. Right? And it's funny that way, but it is true. And that's what happened at that time. And so each guy got followed. I remember he describes one guy who says, it will go like Peter Pan. Follow me, we'll fly through the air. Miraculously, we will bomb Rome. And so they all jumped off like the walls of Jerusalem. Of course, they all fell to their death. You understand? And someone else says, follow me through the Red Sea, uh, the Mediterranean, and we'll march on Rome. The waters will split in time of Moshe. But you've got to be like Naksim ben Aminonov. You've got to be willing to go to the waters over your head. So they did, and they drowned, you know? So, the, uh, so that's what you call empirical verification. But sometimes, sometimes you don't have empirical verification, and the, and the belief in a particular uh, individual as a messianic figure uh, pops up here. So Josephus didn't grow up in a regular time. You understand? He's growing up, as I say before, uh, in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. The war breaks out with the, against the Romans in around 65, 66. And so it's a crazy uh, era. There are therefore a lot of sects that pop up that challenge the status quo. We already had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now you had all these little other groups who, when you face very difficult political situations, they do what many of us do, which is turn off the channel. Right? Withdraw from politics. You know, look at sports, something like that. You just, 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 just get out of it. Ah, the world's going to hell in the hand basket. Ah, it's just, you know, it'll happen without me. Right? In those days, they didn't have, uh, you know, sports and things like that, so they withdraw into a sectarian kind of existence. It could be a monk, monastic type existence, like you find the Dead Sea Scrolls in there, right? They're withdrawing from everybody. It could be something else. And so uh, if you lived in the Jerusalem of Josephus' time or the Hebron or these other places, it was an interesting place, like Greenwich Village or something, you know. Now, um, as I said before, he came from a priestly family, which means Josephus came from an establishment family and from a politically conservative family. They were the part of the people, the Habs. And the Habs are usually on the side of the present and not of the revolution. He claims he was good in learning. He wrote an autobiography, which has recently been retranslated into English and also recently in the Hebrew by uh, Daniel Schwartz. Uh, Mayor never gave this. This is, from, uh, the, this is the Talmud Mogul, Rabbi Baumgarten. I'm serious. He's now, he's now something in the big, a big deal in, in, in the Israeli academic world. And this is uh, uh, Josephus' personal autobiography. It's not very long. And he says, he's very good in learning. The Kohen Gadol used to come and ask him Shilas. Right? Now, uh, among others, when he was 14 years old. And I know many people made similar claims over there. I've been in Baltimore long enough. But, uh, but, 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 but uh, it, you know, you never know. The reason I say you never know is in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and if he's born in 37, and let's say when he's 30, 14, it's like the year 54, it's very possible because you had illiterate Kohen Gadols. True or not? Does the Mishnah not say, in Yuma, many are familiar with what I'm about to say, that it's the job to make sure the Kohen Gadol doesn't sleep the night of Yom Kippur? Remember this? He has to stay up all night. And what do you do? You keep him up. And how do you keep him up? If he knows how to read, you re he reads. If he doesn't know how to read, you read for him. Excuse me? <laughs> the Kohen Gadol doesn't know how to read? Because the Romans, or the Herodians, or some group like that, or Agrippa, put in these guys for strictly political reasons, we know that the high priesthood was prostituted to politics uh, notoriously during the last 20, 30 years, and maybe more, prior to the destruction of the temple. It's a sad fact of Jewish history. And uh, for all I know, 
I could definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm making up a nice novel at least. You know, here's a going girl, he doesn't know the shell, he doesn't, he's afraid to ask anybody else. And he's, but I know a 14 year old kid is good at learning. <laughs> and so he won, the, he won the Mishnah contest, and I go and talk to him. Anything is possible. All we know is that, um, uh, you know, he, he had a typical upbringing until he's 15. And then he does something that's very American. He goes to California, he goes on a religious voyage for three years, he tells us, from 16, 17, 18 or to 19, and he checks out different sects, okay? Which I could totally see happening in an American, perhaps not a from context, perhaps he hasn't from context, in which you go, go on voyages of exploration. It's not atypical of, of teens, especially in troubled times. And so he hangs out with the uh, Sadducees, with the Essenes, he tells us, out there in the Dead Sea Scrolls, he, he follows this guy who's a nature lover who dresses only in uh, grass and things like that, you know? Uh, maybe does other things with grass. I don't know. The point is, <laughs> the point. The point is that he obviously he must. It was an intelligent guy who's growing up in the, in the middle of the uh, conservative establishment, and yet is looking for something else. But as often happens with the Jews, after exploring all the others, he comes back home. <laughs> right. First of all, somebody's got to pay the bills, and second of all, second of all, what's out there is is is, is not that great either. Right. So you see, with and he claims to end up with the Pharisees, like his family. Now, this is going to be a, a big controversy among the historians. Later, we'll get to the Frum ones, the Deris Hashem and others, but, you know, uh, but he claims to be from the Prushim, what we would call a regular Jew, and he would identify the Pharisees as those who believe, roughly speaking, in what we would call Tarshav Alpeh. Anyhow, this is what's going over there. Um, at the age of 26, he does his famous trip to Rome. Um, the story he tells, which gives him a taste, a foreshadowing of what's going to be his future life. 26. Um, very briefly, and it's a very cool story I've said many times, uh, there were some friends of his who were Kohanim who got arrested in, a Roman in an anti-Roman demonstration. They are, at least that was the cops said. And this is Rome, they don't fool around, so there's condemned to the salt mines or something like that. And uh, that's death. And, you know, living death. And so immediately... Uh, a pigeon shvuyim campaign establishes in Israel to try to do something to get these guys out. And Josephus, a young man, joins a group of people who travel to Rome in order to somehow hopefully lobby the Roman government at that particular time in order to be able to somehow get these guys off. The story he tells is that he was on the ship and the ship got shipwrecked. It banged into another ship uh, from Cyrenaica and it got shipwrecked, uh, it, it went down. And all these guys were trying to hang on for dear life and he's one of the few that actually, uh, you know, maybe got picked up in a ship, I don't remember, but he, he, he makes it back to, to, makes it all the way to Italy as a, as, as a shipwreck near Naples. And then from Naples, he makes his way north uh, to uh, Rome. He walks there, it's not that far. And uh, once he's in Rome, so uh, here's his mission, you know, how's he supposed to do it? All the others have, have drowned, but he hasn't given up, he tells us. And so one thing leads to another. This is a novel, basically. So one thing leads to another, and he meets a Jew named Alaturius, which obviously is not his Jewish name, who's an actor. Now, to be an actor in the Roman stage, let's put it that way, he's not exactly a from lifestyle. So we would say today, this is a guy who works in Las Vegas, you know? And, uh, and, and wait a second, and he, and, and he has a non-Jewish name and non-Jewish friends and all the rest of it, but he's a Yiddish Yid. No, he has what you call a pentel Yid, you know? And Josephus is like this, I'm here on a mission to get the government to do something for these refugees. And the guy says, I will help you, because I'm friends with Papia Sabina. Papia Sabina was the wife of the Emperor Nero, and a very famous uh, person. Nero eventually killed her, but he killed everybody. It was related to him. And uh, that's what makes Nero an interesting story. And Papia Sabina was like Madonna. 
she was interested in, in Judaism and Kabbalah and things like that, as, as many of the Roman uh, noble people were in, in, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. And the end of the story is he makes a connection between uh, this young Kohen from Yerushalayim from the base of Migdash and Papiya Sabina. I mean, it really is a situation where a guy from Meisharim is meeting uh, uh, Madonna, you know, because uh, Papiya was a notorious uh, person. So I spent five years, five minutes talking about the notorious activities of Papiya, not in the synagogue. Anyway, the, uh, and, 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 yet, and yet she says like this, she says, I'll help you. And she does. And she talks to Nero who was crazy, right? And she gets him to say, okay, and to sign the thing, and the guys get out. So it's a classic case of what the Chazal referred to in the old days as the ideal Jewish community. We want most Jews to be from, but you need an actor here or there. <laughs> and you need someone, that, you know, something over there. It's, it's true. And this person played the right role at the right time, did he not? And the result was a happy ending. Uh, the acquaintance with the power of Rome obviously had a decisive effect on this 26-year-old making a member of the moderates in Jerusalem. Because if you've been in Rome, although you see how Meshuggah uh, Nero is, you see how powerful is the might of Rome and how great the armies are. And so he's not one of these guys living in a, in a neighborhood in Yerushalayim, for example, saying, you know, Rome is Satan, and we can take him on, and we'll do another Moshe Rabbeinu, and we'll you know, bring ten plagues on him, all the rest of it. He's I've seen Rome. <laughs> Imagine, just to give you a muscle, imagine an Indian, uh, I'm just make this up, uh, you know, sitting bull, and you take him, uh, in 1875, the year before the Custer thing, take him to New York City. He said, gee, I guess the white man I'm going to get, get, get kicked out after all. <laughs> you understand? He comes back with a little bit of a whoa. And that's Josephus. By the time he returned, okay, and he was born, I think, in 37, so he's 26, so what did they put? 63, right? So 63, 64, it's the year before the revolt breaks out. The beginnings of the revolt under the provocations of Gessius Florus were underway. Josephus describes to us in great detail it's very interesting uh, what led to the revolt, which was just a, a, a number of bad things. The Roman procurators, which are the governors, general, appointed by the Caesars, were usually highly corrupt. Although Romans, Rome did have a good reputation in many places for good government, even today people use the Roman roads and bridges, I know you know that, but not everywhere in Jerusalem and, and, and Judea, for a variety of reasons, uh, got the worst. And uh, the last guy, Gessius Florus, was particularly bad, Josephus tells us, and he was a, a, an embezzler beyond belief, Josephus tells us. And he realized that his embezzlements were getting out of hand, uh, Josephus tells us, and uh, that the Jews were going to tell him and word was going to get back to Rome and he'd get fired or worse. And so what he resolved to do, as you sometimes will read in stories, is provoke a revolt among the Jews and he will escape in the wreckage. You understand? Because once there's a war on, so then the questions of how the government was run prior to that will be pushed aside and the general destruction. And he did get away with it. This was, unfortunately, totally successful, Josephus tells us. And um, therefore, Yerushalayim becomes a chaotic situation of patriots, extremists, and criminals. Just those, those three. And that's a bad situation. Okay? So in other words, instead of having David HaMelech Yisrael somebody in charge, or some kind of sane government, it's like every other Middle Eastern state today. I mean, what is Syria, if not a combination of patriots, extremists, and criminals. What is <laughs> Tunisia, Iraq, uh, you name it, okay? And by the way, those are the countries that are not doing well. <laughs> the other countries, the, the criminals have taken over. Now, this would be a major sheet of his writings, right? Josephus is a conservative person, and his uh, major you know, thesis is a failed state is worse than Roman tyranny. 
It's actually a very widely held belief today. Okay? Perfect, the enemy, the good. A failed state is worse than Roman tyranny. Because when the Romans were in charge, as bad as that was, and the extra taxes and all the persecutions and junk like that, all of which is true, you had at least a basic minimal standard of law and order. But when the drug lords are in charge, as we would say today, you can't walk the street. You understand? When there's no, when, when, when it's little militias over here everywhere, you, you know, every street is, 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 is like a drug zone. You understand? Then it becomes a question who's got more guns or who more knives. That's worse. You see? And the Jews wouldn't see it his way, he writes in his writings. Was he wrong on this? I think he was right, personally. Um, to see if his willingness to call out Roman tyranny is interesting. He doesn't say, oh, the Romans were always right. And the Jews are always wrong, and the Jews are like that. That's the kind of thing you'll find from columnists for the Atlantic Magazine and the New York Times today. Israel's always wrong, and the Arabs are always right. Obama's always right, and Bibi's always wrong. Joseph is not like that. He could criticize the corruption of the appointees of the Julio-Claudians because he was writing under the next dynasty, the Flavians, and the entire political legitimacy claim of the Flavians was that they had sta stepped in to save the state from the misrule of the Julio-Claudians. Julio you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Here, look at this. Here's, the, here's a list of the first bunch of emperors in Rome. Watch what I'm doing. Augustus, followed by Tiberia, then Caligula, then Claudius, then Nero. That's called the Julio-Claudians. That was the mishpacha, directly or indirectly, of Julius Caesar. Okay? They were what they were. And all the stories that we're talking about until now happened to them. Because the revolt breaks out under Nero, the, la the, the last of them. The Julio-Claudians. Uh, when Josephus writes his history, he's talking about the misrule, among other things, of the Roman governors. I'll say it again. He writes about the misrule of the Roman governors. I, I thought he's working for the Romans. He lived under these guys, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian. They're the dynasty that took over after these guys were wiped out. The entire political legitimacy claim of these guys is we stepped in to save the Roman Empire from the misrule of the Julio-Claudians. So these guys, Vespasian and Titus, will not mind. It's politically correct. It's okay if he says that the governors appointed by the earlier emperors were corrupt. You understand? Then they'll say, oh, the Vespasian will say, yeah, not me. You know, that's, that, that's why you need me. I would, he says, these were corrupt aristocrats. They were related to Julius Caesar. They came from the highest elements of Roman aristocracy. All I need to say to you today is, look at the British royal family. That tells you what the aristocrats are like. Okay? Uh, Diana and all this business, right? Now, on the other hand, Vespasian says, I came from a peasant family. Started in the army as a private first class. Worked my way up. Get the, you, you get the argument? Therefore, I represent common sense. <laughs> Harry S. Truman, right? That's, uh, that, 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 that was the argument. And so he could do so. Whatever the circumstances, conservative criticisms of the Romans and their bad administration of Israel, Judea, is remarkable on the part of a Jew living in Rome and getting a monthly check from the Roman government. And it gives a certain veracity, does it not, to Josephus' account, making him an historian and not just a propagandist. You can't simply say, as I said before, Josephus is not right like Jeffrey Goldberg. <laughs> right? Josephus is not right like some of these guys that you see today that, like I say, Israel is always, always wrong. And the Jewish thing is always wrong. The Orthodox are always wrong. And all light is, is on this side. That's, they, they, these guys are beneath contempt. Get a little bit beyond that. Or the Romans always right? No, no, they're not. They made their mistakes. Having said they made their mistakes, it was a terrible mistake to rise against the Romans, he'll say. But I, I want to explain why it happened. Um, it's little things like this that make Josephus' account believable, although not totally. Another example, based on contemporary sad Jewish reality, is his account of the Syrian massacres and Jewish communities as collateral damage from the revolt. 
I don't have to believe it or not, I didn't bring my Josephus with me tonight. But he said, you know what he says? He says, when a war broke out in Gaza, they killed Jews in, in Paris and Copenhagen. He said, when the revolt broke out in Judea, in Syria, even though they had nothing, the Jewish communities in Syria had nothing to do with the revolt that took place in Judea, the Gaim over there all arose and massacred their Jewish neighbors with whom they had lived in peace for centuries. Uh, sound familiar? Okay. You read this, especially today, and you know what, you see, we don't get the truth. You see? Now, um, what, 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 what? Yeah, yeah, okay. As to the main events, the Jerusalemites rioted against Florus because he provoked them because he wanted, as I say, to cover his tracks, the governor. He massacred them. He fled the city. Cestius Gallus marched with an army to Jerusalem, which was defeated by Jewish insurgents, the guy who came to rescue Florus. They, this electrified the public, meaning that was the worst possible thing that could have happened. It made the Jews believe that they could take on the whole Roman army. The public declared independence of Rome, established a rowdy revolutionary government. Such governments are usually rowdy and are usually composed of various factions. This is not true in every case. Factions among the Jews ran from right to left, from conservative to radical. It's all in Josephus. A governing council was formed, including, among other people, Rabbi Gamaliel. Isn't that interesting? Okay? And so uh, he obviously was from Beis Hillel, the Nasi of the Sanhedrin, he was what you would call an establishment figure. Now, you also had other people there who said, let's bomb Rome right now. And this is what revolutionary councils are composed of. Uh, as in the case of other revolutions, there were tensions between moderates who wanted to secure better treatment from Rome and radicals who wanted to declare independence from and do a Jew to Maccabee on them. So obviously, the Ramagam Leo types were saying like this, we've, we've been subject to bad procurators, to horrible misrule, uh, we should negotiate with the Roman authorities and say we're willing to be under Rome, but we want a fairer treatment. And this, and that, you know, that's always the approach of moderates. The radicals say, like this, enough with the machnia teragoyim, down with Rome. It's Esav. Yaakov has already bowed to Esav enough. Now kill Esav. Vaishasev Shmuel es Agog. You know, right? Chamanev, all that kind of stuff. And the Gamliels got pushed aside. That's, this is what happened. Uh, Josephus and other members of the establishment were moderates. In the beginning, in a traditional society as Jews, moderates enjoyed a certain authority. Uh, people like Gamaliel and others did have tremendous, you know, there's a, I just got to share this. The Mishnah tells us one thing about this Roman Gamaliel. I think he's mentioned once, in, I believe he's mentioned once in the Mishnah. And in the following context, in Menachas, I think, where it says that some Jew courted the market on the birds. Remember this? That every lady... When you have a baby, you have to bring a carbon of a bird. Kinim, they call it. A king. And uh, two birds. And uh, we've all been in Yerushalayim, I was, I'm sure this audience, and they take you to the places, you know, near the Kotel, where they used to have now the temple excavations. And you see across the street, they used to sell, sell spices and animals. Am I right? You all know what I'm talking about. So somebody sold birds, right? <laughs> you know, it's always the same thing. Wherever, some, wherever you have something, someone's making a buck on it, Okay. So they sell birds, but there's such a thing as having a moderate price, and there's such a thing as a guy cornering the market. And so somebody uh, bought up all the birds and jacked up the price. And so Rabbi Gamaliel heard about this, the Mishnah tells us. He was so angry, he said, Hamaona, I swear by the temple, I swear by the base of Megus, that I'm going to bust them. And he it said like this, by the authority invested me as head of Sanhedrin, we hereby declare this law buttle, at least for now. Okay? That you don't have to uh, bring the bird offerings. Which, of course, left this guy with a big... <laughs> <laughs> right, 
and you know, and, and and until they would agree to his conditions, they wouldn't restore. To the, so Ram Gamliel comes out as you can imagine, a populist, you know, a a, a powerful, uh, what we say, a rabbinic figure, whatever, in this sort of thing. And yet he was a member of the government, but his faction, the moderates, in the nature of things, are moderate. And and then and as soon as you have militias forming and armies, unless you have a Judah Maccabee guy or Bar Kokhba, who's very charismatic, who could command the control of everybody, which did not happen in this occasion, he's just going to have little private armies doing each one doing their own thing. As a result, Josephus, though barely 30, had protexia, because he came from an established family, barely 30, and he became a general in the Galilee against the Romans, even though he had no military experience. He describes himself as an excellent general, but that, of course, is probably baloney. Uh, how, how could he be an excellent general with no background? He said he read books on military affairs. <laughs> Would you like to be commanded by a guy? <laughs> you know, right. I could be a good lawyer. I saw seven episodes of Perry Mason. You know, right? <laughs> you know. uh, more faithfully, he got, into arguments, he got into arguments with other military leaders. He describes this in great detail. What I'm telling you now is most likely the least accurate parts of Josephus' account. Most likely. I wasn't there. He says, he got in arguments with other military leaders, particularly John of Gishchalah, Yochanan of Gushchalov, a charismatic commander. Basically, the way he describes it, he was the Haganah, and Yochan Gushchalov was the Irgund, or the Stern Gang. You follow? Therefore, they were irresponsible elements in this, that, and the other. Uh, because Josephus, and not John, wrote the book, so John is portrayed in the blackest colors. Oh, my goodness. He was a, a, you know, a molester, I mean, you know, and he was a, a, a ganav and a murderer, and oh, you name it. Historians don't rely on this sort of thing uh, too much. The reason they don't reside, as the Doris Rishonim put it, he says, Josephus says that, that John of Gisco was a good friend, very close friend of Shimon Gamliel. It's unlikely that the Nazi from Basel would be a good friend of the type of person he's explaining. But it doesn't matter. As Winston Churchill proved long ago, if you write the history book, you can put yourself in the position that you want. Okay? Uh, you know, Martin Gilbert died the other week, and he was a great man, but he probably was too much of a fan of Churchill. If you know really what happened, Churchill messed up a lot, but you wouldn't tell it by reading his book. Okay? Now, it's very well written, by the way, but you won't tell it by reading his book. So that's how it goes. In the end, well, let's put it this way. Uh, Josephus does provide a very full account. Uh, he tells the story, but he does tell a very full account, and it's clear a lot of it is accurate. It's clear that Jewish quarrels undermine any hope for a coherent defense of the Galilee. The whole war was lost when it was decided to go into the defensive. Agreed? It's almost impossible. It's possible, but it's very hard. You have to be like Frederick the Great or something. It's very hard to allow the other guy the offense and you do the defense. I'm not a big chess player, but I bet you there are people, they're probably, t I mean, I might be wrong, so I'm not going to say, but I would imagine if you play a totally defensive chess game, it's probably very difficult. What? Yeah, it's probably very difficult. So um, the Jews couldn't, I mean, let's put it this way. What are we, declaring war in Rome? <laughs> right? Are we invading Syria and Lebanon and Turkey? You know, you know, right? So the answer is we can't take on Rome. The only thing is we can play defense. As soon as you play defense, you lost. And so the Romans invaded with a big army and, they, and, and, and half the Jews uh, you know, didn't join the revolt because they said, nobody asked us, we're not Meshuga. And you couldn't have a coherent defense of the Galilee. Um, it wasn't like the Maccabean revolt, which was always more offensive. The Romans sent a very, uh, an army under Vespasian, who was a smart cookie. Vespasian was an experienced general. Uh, right away, as soon as he arrived with an army, the city of Tsipori, which in the smack in the middle, surrendered. 
They said, we're not crazy, we're not going to be a part of this. As soon as you don't control your own lines, so how can you control a, a defense line where here and here and here, they let them in? It doesn't work. It boiled down to a number of sieges. Josephus commanded the city of Yodpata, which he describes in incredible detail. According to him, according to him, he was a dynamic commander. Again, the city is very detailed siege. This you can find online. They dramatize it. I saw it, the BBC. Look at this. Here's a, this. It's actually not so inaccurate. They follow Josephus over here. They're the Romans attacking Yodpata. The Jews are obviously inside. Okay, This pretty much does follow his uh, system over here, right? And the Romans, as you can tell, were highly disciplined. And when they say march, you march. The Jews don't have this kind of discipline or anything like that. There's a Josephus in the city, and he's, according to him, he had read the book, so he knows how to do countermeasures. And you see, he's saying, wait for me, and then here we go, and then we shoot. Okay, and then the Romans will uh, form a, a turtle and all that kind of business. You know, see, the testudo. And uh, what you see, uh, this particular piece which is a two or three part episode and some BBC thing, is actually pretty accurate as far as, as far as the Josephus description is concerned. In general, for those of you out there who are interested in military history, Josephus' details are unique in ancient history, or very rare, and certainly in, in, in Jewish history. Chazal are not interested in the details of the military attacks and wars. That is not what interests them at all, okay? Um, but here he does, here, I'll, look, look, watch the following scene. Uh, from the next one, you'll hear the sound. If Vespasian was, according to the account, Vespasian was wounded in, by an arrow, like you just saw. All that is exactly the way it's described in the book, which means, he said, look how clever I was. He didn't invent boiling oil, but it's a good countermeasure against the testudo, agreed? And he goes into wonderful detail, if you like that sort of thing, how the boiling oil got underneath the armor of the Romans and then drove them crazy and little by little ripped their skin off. Uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that people like to read about once upon a time. Now, um, but what's the point of the whole thing? I don't want to give you a, a long detailed image of it because I'm interested in Josephus, the historian. The city falls eventually. Uh, Josephus survives. He tells a story where you know, his guys were all uh, really uh, you know, radical and uh, the last survivors are in a cave and they say, we'll go down fighting. And uh, he persuades them to uh, cast lots who should you know, commit mass suicide, or better yet, one guy will kill everybody and the last guy will kill himself. He arranges the straws and he gets the job. He kills the other 40 and then he goes out and surrenders to the Romans. Okay? Um, so again, if you're a certain type of person, he's like, look what a disgusting person you are. He says, I guess, what a bit of sugar, you know? These guys were nuts. They, they, they wouldn't do the right thing. I did a good, you know, I didn't, they, they, either way, they're going to die. Okay? So I just did a smart thing. He claims that he went out and when he went to the Romans, the Romans were about valued him greatly, and he, he says the story that the Talmud asso associates with Yochum and Zakkai. He says, he went to Vespasian, he said, I know you're going to be the next emperor. I see it in the gods or something like that, in the omens. And uh, Vespasian was impressed with him. What is true is, the Romans did take him in and give him a high position. No, they put him on the uh, staff of uh, Vespasian, the general. The other Roman officers, he tells us, wanted to kill him. They were really enraged right, because they were very anti-Jewish, that he got special treatment, but Titus and Vespasian said, get your hands off him, he's on my thing, he's my Jew, and leave him alone, okay? Now, obviously, the Romans wanted him as a psychological war weapon, correct? He'd been a former Jewish general, every guy, the Romans are very scientific in their approach to war, which is the right way to be, and, uh, you know, it's another revolt. <laughs> if it's Tuesday, it's another revolt, you know. America's facing this situation now. If it's not Afghanistan, it's Iraq. If it's not Iraq, it's Tunisia. Next week is Syria. We don't know. What we're, and we're not an imperial country, you know, like the Romans were. They were willing to pay this price. And so if it's Tuesday, it must be Phoenicia, you know. And 
the result is that they had an attitude that anything that, that works to uh, tamp it down should be used. So you divide and conquer, you bribe off. Uh, the Romans themselves spent a lot of money training their own soldiers. So when they have a bloody battle, what they would do is they would hire mercenaries, Arabs, Africans, Gauls, send them in to do the, you know, the, the bloody junk. And then once that's there, then send in the Roman army to finish the job. Because otherwise, why waste a good Roman soldier you know, in another stupid uh, you know, war in, 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 in Pakistan or something like that? So this is the type of situation he's talking about over here. He clearly found favor in the eyes of Vespasian. And Vespasian was the general who went on to be the next emperor. From then on, he was on his personal staff. While this is happening, um, civil war is raging in Jerusalem. Everything I talked about was in the Galil. Back at home, forget this moderate, radical alliance, coalition. The coalition politics broke down. Oh yeah, I hope I'm not saying anything about Israeli politics now. He says, there, 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 there was a bloodshed in the base Hamikdash. Get it? Group A versus group B. This is the hardest part to follow in Josephus, as far as I'm concerned, uh, because you got a scorecard. In the same way, you have to have a scorecard of who's who in Syria today, I'm sorry to say, and in Iraq. I read a book two weeks ago by a guy, Ehrlich, whatever, uh, and he's a real journalist. He, was, he had four pages of who's who in, in, in Syria. You know, is it the Arab army of Syria, the Syrian army of the Arabs, the Arab of the, the Islamic reliance of this, the reliance of the Arab of that? It's, it's crazy, but it's, but it's not crazy over there. It's a reality. We fell into this, and we had Elizabeth and Shimon, and Hanan ben Hanan, and Shimon ben Giora, and Yochanan Kuchkalov, and this guy, he's got, it, he's got it down in excruciating detail. And I'll tell you again, they were killing and fighting inside the base Hamigdash. It was like Beirut. And, 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 and this is what Yerushalayim looked upon at that time, I'm sorry to say. Okay? Um, ultimately, more Jews are killed by Jews, I've said this many often, in this war than were killed by Romans. That's a pretty bad statement. More Jews were killed by Jews in civil wars than the Romans killed. And so you end up, I mean, you know, this is what, this is what Jews did to each other uh, during, during, during the time of Josephus. Um, this is one of the main reasons. In fact, they only stopped the civil war when Titus showed up and, and attacked. And for a long time, the Romans held back. The war lasted a lot longer than it needed to. The uh, Vespasian conquered the Galilee, I think, in 67, I believe, by the time they organized an army and sent it over there. And they didn't invade Jerusalem until 70. So what happened in 68 and 69? You know? And he said, why should I do anything? They're doing a better job for me than whatsoever. Right? One group of Jews is killing the other group of Jews, and then the third one stepping in is Givaldic. And so uh, it was pretty bad. And in all this time, the moderates, as the rabbis, as they're described in the Gemara, Josephus, as he puts it, are saying, why don't you stop this? You know, put an end to the war. Oh, no. Because in this kind of environment, power counts. Ruthlessness counts. The, the, the stronger person, the more one ruthless, the more the more less mercy you have. You know all that kind of business. And it was just it was just terrible. Meanwhile, Nero died back in Rome, and they had a bunch of civil wars. And by the time it's over, Vespasian left Israel and became the emperor of Rome. So that makes it even more strong that they're going to finish off the Jewish war. The game cannot be won while I continue the war. As I told you, the Gemara says the same thing. Josephus appeals for surrender. He writes about this. I could have showed you the movie. It just I don't want to take too long. And uh, it provokes derision. Okay? Here's a famous picture from a medieval manuscript, a, a Renaissance manuscript. This is because uh, they read it. There's Jerusalem, there's Josephus, and there are Jewish prisoners, of which there were hundreds, of which the Romans every day crucify in front of the walls to play psychological mind games on the Jewish defenders. You get what I'm saying? 
Oh, you're so-and-so. I know your cousin. Here he is. Right? Here she is. And they seem wasting away on a cross. And if you surrender, we'll take them down. That's a, it's a, it's a psychological warfare. And, and, the, and therefore, Josephus on this uh, animal is appealing to them to surrender. And of course, they don't listen. They try to shoot him and things of this nature. Um, again, it's the same story that Gamor has with Rabbi Yochum and Zagai. Correct? He's, he's inside the city and he, and he comes out and he says, So is Josephus a traitor? That's the question I'm raising for you. Is he a traitor? Uh, his description of the siege reveals much bad about Jew and Jew violence. Oh my goodness. I'm not going to take the trouble. Do I do it on Tishabov? If you read Josephus and how one group of Jews tortured the other, denied them food, how they, scrapped, they tore uh, food out of the mouth of babies. You understand? Of how they, uh, I, don't, I don't even go into, the, uh, into physical descriptions of the, of the tortures that one set of Jews did on the other set of Jews. You know, I, I'll get you too upset. But, uh, but on the other hand, it did happen. And you find pretty parallel, not exactly, but pretty parallel descriptions in the Talmud and the rabbinic literature. Okay? Certainly about the horrors of the siege, and without such great description, because in the Gemara then not into this graphic stuff as much, you find this Jew on Jew uh, violence. Of course, this is all in addition to the Roman on Jew violence. And then it culminates in his terrible description of Tisha B'Av, which is something that should only be read on Tisha B'Av, but, uh, you know, the Romans finally break in. I mean, consider the following just for a moment. They're fighting during the nine days. The Jews, you know what the three weeks are. That means after Shabbat Shabbat they're already on the Temple Mount. So the hill on which the base of Mish located, that whole complex, the Romans are already there after Shabbat Shabbat So they're fighting in the building complexes of what we call the base of Migdash. And the main complex is the one that we usually think about, you know, with the Ezra Snoshim in the front and the Kodesh Kedoshim in the back and all that kind of stuff. So what's the plan, guys? I mean, the Romans have taken Jerusalem and they've taken the Temple Mount, the Harabias. And it's just a matter down to here. And all during this period of three weeks, they continue to fight. They, they believed, like radicals, that at the last minute a miracle will happen. And when it gets to Tisha B'Av, on the eighth of Av, on the eighth of Av, on seventh of Av, the Romans launch a, 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 an attack on the temple itself, and the, the Jews repel it. I mean, where are you going on the eighth of Av? It's down to nothing. It's down to two inches. But they don't care. And so eventually, the fighting is of such a nature that the Romans break into the temple without going through all the details. And when they do, they start massacring. And, the, and so much blood, he describes like buckets of blood. And, they, and there's no place. The Roman soldiers are jumping over dead bodies everywhere. And they're killing men, women, and children. And the whole place goes up in flames. It's a horrible uh, description. Uh, way beyond anything you'll find in the Gemara. In other words, on, on, on Tisha B'Av, if you're into this stuff, uh, you want to read Josephus more than anything else. He defends the conduct of Titus. This is associated with the destruction of a religious temple. Usually the Romans don't like to be associated with the destruction of a religious temple. And therefore they say, I guess, oh, Titus didn't want this. He kept telling the Jews, surrender last minute, and even on the teach above itself. Titus tried to prevent the base of from actually being burned. He wanted to take it alive, so to speak, but a Roman soldier without listening to him, he says, threw uh, torches in the buildings. And, the, and then the soldiers, the legionaries, went berserk which is totally believable, and they start throwing in more torches, and the whole place went up over there. This has led to funny things. I'll talk a little bit later about Yosifun, which is a from version of Josephus, it's not exactly accurate, and Yosifun uh, copies everything I just told you, that Titus was a good guy, basically, and he tried to prevent the basic mix from going up. 
But in the Talmud, it says Titus was a bad guy. He brought his own into the Kodesh of Kadoshim. He stabbed the parochi. He did all kinds of things like this. Now, a from guy like the Doris Rishonim will say like this. Forget Joseph, he's a liar, only go with the Gemara. But Yosifon became thought of as a famous safer. Like a Rishon or something like that. So if he says it, that's also true. So the Maral of Prague has a book called Beir Agolo, in which he tries to reconcile. You can read it in English, the article is translated. Reconcile the two versions between the Talmud on the one hand, which portrays Titus as, as hell-bent on, on desecrating, destroying the Temple on the one hand, versus Yosefin that presents a different Titus. And such are the vagaries of rabbinic literature. Um, the end of the fighting, uh, let's put it this way, Josephus and Titus and his staff, he's there, he witnesses the whole thing, he's in the aftermath of the destruction, he has terrible details about the POWs, 11,000 of whom were made to stand in the sun for days and days on the Temple Mount, while the Romans pick him out what to, and figure out what to do, and the Romans tell the prisoners, each one should tell the other who they think that the Romans, and many of them do, and some of them won't eat tray for food, and they perish from hunger. Uh, Josephus rescues his relatives, he told Titus, this guy, this guy, this guy is a friend of mine. Whoever he said, 192 people, if, if Josephus says he's a friend of mine, they let him go. Um, he, Titus says, listen, the temple's going up in flames. You want anything? Take it. You know, he says, I took this farm. <laughs> okay? The, the scrolls. Um, the end of the fighting takes place a month after Tishabov. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, the destruction of the temple was not the end of the war. They fought in other neighbors of Jerusalem for another month. Where is that going? Okay? Titus even appealed to them after Tishabov, at least the guys left in the, in the underground sewers, I mean this, like, like in the worst I get, you should surrender, and they wouldn't surrender until a month later. Jews are being massacred, sold into slavery, eaten by lions, and the gladiator rings. Uh, some of you have been to Beit Shan, a place in Israel. Uh, you remember, and the Gemara says that a Jew shouldn't go to a circus of gladiator uh, thing. It's not a Jewish thing. And the other rabbi said, oh, they should go. Why? You might see your cousin and then go like that. No, 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 it, it was a reality. Get it? What if there's a Jewish guy out there? So you know what I'm talking about. If the crowd says this, they kill him. So on the contrary, the whole shul, this is life once upon a time. They'll say, I guess, to give a clap and the whole base matters, the whole shul should run immediately to the gladiator ring and I go like this, you know? <laughs> right? Um, so, and he describes all this sort of thing. Um, the problem is Josephus is doing just fine in all this. He's not affected. So this bothers us because... Claudius Roll was suffering, and they literally were having parties, Titus, to celebrate the uh, victory all over the place by throwing the Jews to the lions. Uh, but Josephus is there along with the rest of them. That's not a Taina, you know, I mean, he, that's how he found himself. Yochim Zakai also wasn't involved in the violence, but it's of a different nature. Titus, he says, gives him a girl to marry. She's a virgin, but a captive. And as a coin, he's not allowed to marry a captive, but Titus says, I want you to marry, so he does, but later he divorces her. This is what he tells us. So, which means he knows about the halachas that we're familiar with from the Talmud. Uh, Josephus accompanies Titus to Rome. He witnesses and describes the great triumph of Titus, who has one of these big parades. I know you know this from the Arch of Titus, right? Many have been there, right? There's a, there's a little bit left of it. So, he describes it in, in extreme detail. He also describes the Colosseum, which the Flavians, which Vespasian builds out of the money taken from Jerusalem. He says this, right? Um, so when you go to the Colosseum today with the wreck, but once upon a it was a fantastic thing. It was a big PR for the Flavian dynasty. Look what we're doing for the city of Rome. It cost a, a, a huge amount of money, but they had the money from, the, from the, uh, Israel. He gets a free house and a government pension. I told you, you know, he had a nice salary uh, by, by our standards today. Why are the Flavians so good to him? Why is Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, who are anti-Semitic? 
more or less. But the mission really was. And yet, he's treated differently. Why is that? This is a good question. His next door neighbor in, in Rome was Herod Agrippa II. This was uh, a great grandson of, um, of uh, yeah, this is a great grandson of Herod. Uh, there was Agrippa the first, Agrippa the second. You got to watch out. There's a famous Roman, Marcus Licinius Agrippa. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about Herod Agrippa, the Jewish guy. And the father was relatively good. The son was bad. He's a next door neighbor with uh, with uh, Josephus in Rome. He too was a quote unquote traitor to Jewish people. Although he would say, "I'm not a traitor. I wasn't stupid to go like the radicals and, and attack Rome." So he helped the Romans during their war. He ends up moving to Rome because there's nothing left in Israel. It's devastated. His sister is the is the mistress of Titus, Bernice. Okay, I know it sounds funny, but uh, Berenike, uh, she's the daughter of uh, Agrippa I. She's obviously not a front person. Uh, Herod Agrippa II never got married. He lived with his sister for years and years, which broke all kind of, uh, you know, you could have some soap opera with this business. Um, oh, believe me. But anyway, uh, the, story, the, the, the story gets interesting because the emperors, the Flavians, had no noble blood. They came from the peasants. What was their claim to legitimacy? Or was it just that the army had picked a general, which was the truth, they didn't want to say that. That wasn't good enough for Roman culture. You need some kind of propaganda to advance the legitimacy of the ruling uh, dynasty. On the other hand, what was Vespasian's claim to fame? I mean, what had he done so well? Crushed the Jewish revolt? A pipsqueak group in a pipsqueak province? I mean, Julius Caesar conquered France. <laughs> you understand? Pompey conquered the Balkans. Uh, what did you do? I put down a Jewish revolt in Jerusalem. That's not a big deal. Unless it is. Unless the claim can be made that it was an unusually tough war conducted with unusual skill. Right? So it's true. Let's do the next map. Here's the Roman Empire, and here's Judea. It's very small. But, oh my God, you don't know the Jews were fought like crazy. And on the contrary, they were tough, and they were not afraid to die. And although they massacred each other, they're a very warlike race, even though they're engaged in a futile conquest. And any general who could conquer them has done a great service for Rome. You get what I'm saying? That's where Josephus comes in. Right? But that's not the whole background of the famous Jewish war, the Bella Judaica they wrote. The Romans always had an ambivalent attitude towards the Jews, and vice versa. Although the Jews were a small people, they didn't behave like one. Okay? There's always been a problem for the Romans, and, and it's true. Uh, the, there's a wonderful set of Midrashim in, uh, what's it called, in, uh, by, when, when, when the twins are born, uh, Toldos, right? And Toldos, when Yaakov and Esau are born. And he says, They're two, you know the story, the, the mother's pregnant, has twins, uh, Rivka, and he says, You know, they're two great peoples in your belly. Won't be the Romans, will be the ancestors of the Romans, will be the ancestors of the Jews. Right? Or two hated peoples, because all the guy hate the superior races, the Romans and the Jews. <laughs> you know, they always, uh, we always arrogate to ourselves a certain uh, you know, high position in the uh, hierarchy of mankind. The Romans didn't know what to do with that. They thought the Jews should be a small little stupid group, you know, the gypsies or something over here, the Eskimos, and let them uh, be a marginal situation, and yet they're not like that, and we just crushed them, and they won't act like they're crushed. Although most Jews had not participated in the revolt, I repeat, most Jews in the Roman Empire and even in Israel had not participated in the revolt, the destruction of the Temple and of Jerusalem had made the Jews and Judaism look particularly contemptible. Despite this, the Romans 
excuse me, the Jews didn't act like, you know, step and fetch us or something. They still act as if their religion was true and the Roman paganism was a joke. How can you do that? We just destroyed your temple, right? We busted your God. There were still many Roman converts and semi-converts, as Tacitus and others bitterly noted. Tacitus wrote after this, doesn't make any sense. We, you know, by all the accepted rules, we crushed the Jews. They should say we're crushed. You know, they should leave the scene. And yet, senators are converting to Judaism during this period. Many books were written by Roman and Greek authors which so reeked with anti-Semitism that they did not get respectable traction. Isn't that interesting? If you go too far, then you know, it looks like a rant. Vespasian and Titus wanted something new and intriguing. A history of this war told by a Jew from the Jew's point of view. This was unique and would bestow veracity upon the military claims of the non-noble emperor and his son. Of course, it would have to be the right kind of Jew could be trusted to say the right kind of thing and omit the right parts. Josephus, who was on the monthly payroll, was a perfect choice. He, would not be, he did not need to be washed and censored. This would not be another Stalinist type of narrative. Josephus could be trusted to do a genuine job in a manner which was sympathetic to the dynasty. The problem is, Josephus was not a great native Greek speaker, and so he composed a lengthy book in Aramaic for the Babylonian Jews. This book has not survived. That's the original Nusach of Josephus, okay? In his own language, in Aramaic, which is interesting. After he finished the book, he began translating into Greek, but he soon realized that he needed an Oxbridge Don. <laughs> he needed somebody with a good Latin or Greek education to make it elegant Greek. Not only in terms of translation, which of course is important, but in terms of Greek literary style. It has to have the classic orations of dying people, which is such a basic element of Greek history, isn't it? Like Thucydides. Uh, I always love it. Judah Maccabee, pierced by 40 arrows, says, as he lay dying, said, my fellow countrymen, I commend to you <laughs> the struggle for our independence. Few are those who live to see. Guys, 40 arrows, <laughs> goodbye, you know? Okay? I'll do a better one. I'll do a better one. Uh, Masada, which we only know from Josephus, who was not there. Masada happened in 73. By that time, Josephus lived in Rome. See, this aid me, P8. He got this from a Roman officer. Okay? And uh, therefore, all he knows is a bunch of Jews on top of the hill fought to the end, and then when we came there, committed suicide. And I think there's one or two ladies that survived and, and told a, a, a story. Based on this, Eleazar... Right? The commander of Masada has a whole thing. Liberty is worthy of death. Throughout history, tyrants have looked upon those who persevered. He didn't give up. I mean, he, was a, he was a zealot leader. He didn't give a classical oration. But it's not a respectable history unless you do something like that. right? And so Josephus understands, the, the, the reader understands not exactly what happened, but they like to see it put into a, a proper way. So he knew he didn't know how to do that. And so the result is um, he had to get guys that could help him on all this sort of thing. Um, and he did it. He definitely kisses up to his Roman patrons. I mean, after all, they're giving him a check. As well as to Agrippa and Bernice, who were his next-door neighbors, and were from, from his class. And he definitely puffs up his own role at all times. But there's nothing surprising about that. I just showed you Winston Churchill, for example. But if that's all the book was, it wouldn't be interesting today. And for some reason, it's been interesting down till today. Josephus' thesis in the book is that there's nothing wrong with Judaism or the Jewish people. You hear what I said? His main thesis in the book, yes, we got busted, but it's not because there's something wrong with Judaism or with Jewish people. A series of bad events. This is history and not meta-history. Dumb people made dumb choices repeatedly. 
It happens. Learn from the past, get over it, and move on. Every nation in the world has a period like this. Unfortunately, this was our period. Of course, he believes in God, but if you want to know how it happened, this fool did this and that one did that. A series of bad events, including bad Roman procurators, had created a bad situation in Judea, one that allowed Jewish crazies and radicals to come to power, provoke an unwinnable war against Rome, and suffer the consequences. Every single society has radicals, but in a healthy society, they're marginalized. we got radicals in America, do we not? The difference is, hopefully, oh my God, hopefully, they're on the margins. You see? They're on the margins. When the political situation gets unhealthy, marginals enter the mainstream with disastrous consequences. Right? And this is exactly what Joseph has applied in great detail to his own case. People who ordinarily are not from Mishpachas Yeho Yariv. People ordinarily who are not from the right families that knew what to do, what not to do, and the public affairs should be left to their hands. People ordinarily would be riffraff. Right? People from the farm area, you know, the Marmarushes, you know, the, the people like that are now, now, now became the head. Oy vey. That's not good. Hence the refusal to make peace even during the nine days, as I told you. What was the plan they continue to fight when the Romans were up to the temple gate? Hence the outbreak of the Messiahs. Hence the willingness that the Gemara talks about to stab the coffin of Yochum and Zaka. You know the story I'm talking about. The Gemara said when he tried to sneak out as a dead body, they said that half the guards wanted to kill him. What are crazy? I mean, this week is the anniversary of the Yard of Moshe Feinstein, for example. You imagine someone saying, let's just stab the body of Moshe to make sure that he said, well, it's, it's unthinkable today. It was thinkable then, because when you get nuts in charge, then passion assumes control, and then it's no longer reason. But that means that normal Judaism, the normal Jewish polity is okay. So maybe we can get our state and temple back, please. He didn't know what we know today, that they weren't going to get it back. What he was writing over there, he was obviously making a case for the Romans as well as the Jews. He's writing for a Gaish audience, in other words. He says, the Jews are not the craziest that people said. We just had a bad luck. Right? I mean, it's interesting. The desire for liberty is noble. The Romans acknowledged that. That's why when they read the speech of Masada, true or not, they said, oh, I can understand the noble savage that want to be over here. It's a tragedy, but it's not a reflection on Judaism. The book was a hit because of its realism, and his Jewish pride amidst the ruins, flattery and all. In other words, the audience that read Josephus' account of the Jewish war said, you know, the guy's got issues and all the rest of that's true of every historian, but I liked, you know, it, 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 it resonates. The point of me, he's, he's not, uh, you know, just flattery or something like that. Two types of Jews have hated Josephus ever since. Yiddish Yidden and Frummies, okay? Uh, these types, okay? The Ben-Gurians always hate Josephus because he's a bogeyed, he joined the Romans against his own people, which is a crazy oversimplification. Right? And the rabbis have hated him, Josephus. They have their own agenda, but I'll deal with it a little bit later, but he, does, he ignores the Chazal and, and, and things like that. But they use Josephus. <laughs> right? The same people that attack him always use this book. They have to. There is no other book. The Chachamim, the sages, ignore this book. They had their own, as, you, as I just showed you, not very dissimilar account, not dissimilar account, but underneath, you can tell in the from world, it's never in the Gemara, but it was read. Eventually, it entered the from world through Yosifun, which many people today still make the mistake of, com of confusing and conflating with Josephus. There's two separate books. There's a book called Josephus, and then there's this one 
called Yosifon. This is some from person, many centuries later, took the well-known Greek book called Jewish War by Flavius Josephus and another book of his, and wrote a Hebrew, this is Hebrew, it's a wonderful Hebrew, by the way, it's Hebrew account in which they cherry-picked and used some parts, it's not, I won't call it an art scroll history because it's not exactly, but something like that, right? No, I mean it, I mean it. You know, they, they pick and choose the parts and they frum up a few here and there. Uh, it's not clear, it seems that the guys who wrote it thought that they're doing the real thing, but it's not cl clear. This guy, they even get the name wrong. The real Joseph is Yosef ben Matisyahu. This guy is Yosef ben Gurion. But the, uh, Ben Gurion, not Ben Gurion, Ben Gurion. But it doesn't matter. This entered the from world through this translation. It was read by all the Rishonim. They quoted a lot. Uh, Rashi, Ramban, people like that. Uh, you know, Barbanel, to great, a, 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 a great detail. That's why I told you before the Maral is worried about the <laughs> Machlokis between the Gemara on one hand and Yosifun on the other, because Yosifun has a sort of semi from status. Uh, it's not really, it's, it's, it's a fake book. You understand? Now, in Meisharim, they'll shoot me, because I bought this book in Meisharim, and what, of course, we want to say is like this this is the real one, the other one is fake. Because if Rashi used it, or the Barbanel used it, then this has got to be the real one. And the other one out there is, is a phony. Uh, the real historians like the Derrick Shannon won't do that, but ma many will do this today. So if you go to Israel, watch out who you're talking to and when you're talking when you talk about Yosefon versus Josephus, and they'll usually conflate the two. The stories are not exactly the same, but they're roughly the same. And a lot of the tragic stuff enters in both accounts. And this is how from Jews for a thousand years now, because the book came out in the 800s about, this is a, 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 a thousand years, knew about the events of the Second Temple. For example, off the top of my head, if you look in the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, it says, when Hanukkah comes around, you light the candles, you sing Mo's Sur, and then the father gathers everybody around and reads from Yosefun. What's he going to say? Get the Apocrypha? You know? It says Yosefun. And when it comes to Shabbat, again, historically speaking, you know, there used to be Yiddish translations that the women used to read in the Shtetl of Eastern Europe as they pulled uh, feathers out of the uh, pillows and cried. And I mean, and, and, and think this is how Tishabov is experienced. And so the stories of Josephus enter the Jewish public, the from world, uh, through Yosefun. But the two are not exactly identical. And nevertheless, it's always been a bestseller. Ben Gurion said this would turn them into Zionism. As a kid, he read Yosefun, for example. He says, uh, this, this has been a bestseller because the, the stories are, are, are gripping. And especially when they're self-critical, you know, that's more historically true. Would you agree with that statement? When you say we did something wrong, that's usually not the way most people in other cultures write. Sometimes, but usually, usually not. As I said before, um, people like the Maral and others are worried about what the character of Titus is, and, and Doris Rishonim uh, doesn't use Yosipon, he only uses Josephus. In the long run, this book, Bella Judaica, The Jewish War Became the Bible, for all those interested in, in knowing about this saddest era in our history, if we only had the Agatha and the Gemara, we couldn't, be, we couldn't connect the dots. If you just had the story of Yochum and Zakai here, and another thing there, it'd be, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't put it together. What about his inaccuracies? And what about his cheating? Well, we don't treat the writings of Jesus even like Torah. If he went, you know, when he's full baloney, he's full baloney. Fascinatingly, Josephus himself in later years says his history cannot be compared to the Gemara. Isn't that interesting? There's a new translation. Uh, I didn't, believe it or not, I couldn't find my copy today. It's a little embarrassing. But I have the regular old copy of Josephus lying around that everybody might have at home from William Whiston, who was a British missionary 
in the early 1700s, okay? And who was a Greek scholar. And uh, this is a golden oldie, that's the one people usually have. And that's based on his translation from the Greek, which is not perfect, but it's okay. Recently, I discovered not long ago, is a guy, Steve Mason, who is not Jewish, who's in the University of Aberdeen, and he's organized a new up-to-date translation of Josephus uh, in, in, in not only modern English, but a more accurate translation of the Greek. And I found something quite interesting. Take a look at this uh, passage where Josephus uh, taught, let's move on. Here, what? Uh, go, go on to the next one. Go on to the next one. Go on. Yeah, look at this. I want you to listen to this. Encouraged by, this is what Josephus writes. Encouraged by the completion of what I projected, I would now say plainly no other person wished to do, whether Jew or foreigner, would be able to produce this work so precisely for Greek speakers. Meaning, I don't think anybody else could do what I did. For among my compatriots, I'm admitted to have an education in our country's customs, as far as the past theirs. I'm better in learning <laughs> than most Jews. Uh, and once I consolidated my knowledge of Greek grammar, I worked very hard to share in the learning of Greek letters and poetry, although my traditional habit frustrated precision with pronunciation. In other words, I've been a Litvak, you know, I t- I'm always going to talk with an accent. All right? Among us, they do not favor the... In other words, because a good accent in Greek is not chashev among the Jews. Among us, they do not favor those who have mastered the accent of many nations and made their speech freely with elegance of diction, because they consider such a pursuit to be common, not only among those who happen to be free, but even among the domestic slaves of desirous. So we even have Avodim have a good, can speak Greek well. Big deal. How much money do they have, right? Rather, Jews acknowledge wisdom only among those who clearly understand the legal system. Isn't that amazing? There's only those who know Gemara, and among those who are able to bring out the force of the sacred literature, and those who can darshim psukim and bring out the halacha from that. That's the new translation. The old translation is very bad in that regard. In which case, it's, it's kind of interesting, right, that Josephus himself admits, he said, I wrote a history book. <laughs> I'm not claiming this is the last word. Um, the reception of the book is remarkable. It's always been disliked by anti-Semites, and that's a good sign. Would you agree? Uh, it's been disliked by some Jews who try to slander him, who tried to slander him to Vespasian and Titus unsuccessfully. Josephus tells us that when he lived in Rome getting his check, other Jews would go to, the, to Titus and, and Vespasian and Domitian and say, he really was against you. Right now he's organizing an Irgun to fight against Rome. He speaks about you against your back. You're not Jews, so they don't like one another. And, uh, and they wouldn't be Makabalosh and Haranim. It's quite interesting. And Domitian was a tyrant like Nero, and he wouldn't be Makabalosh and Haranim. It's quite an interesting story. He lives on in Rome. He meets all kinds of important Romans. He sees the Tacitus types and the Flavius Clemens types. He sees the Roman senators who are anti-Semites who hate the Jews. And then he sees the Roman senators who convert to Judaism. Isn't that amazing? Because he had both. In the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, Tacitus types, under the influence of Manetho, Appian, and similar writers, give their own version of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, their own version of the Jewish past, which is, uh, uh, I've spoken about that before, many of you know about that, you know, uh, they blacken the Jewish reputation in terms of the biblical story. Josephus resolves to present the truth and expose the lies through his pen. And so he engages in a new career. Josephus, the apologist for the Jews, as a historian, for that's what he become, the only way to fight the lies is to do something that had never been done. And that was to write a complete history of the Jewish people, as they understand it. I say again, as the Jews understand it. Not what the Romans tell us our history is, that heard from fourth-hand source from liars. How do we understand it? And so he writes a book that took him 20 years, The Antiquities of the Jews, which means the ancient history of the Jews, from Breshi's borough to his time. No one had ever done anything like it, and nobody's done anything like it 
till the 1800s. Okay? And this is how the whole world of the past, the Geisha world, has ever learned anything about the Jews. By reading the, the antiquities of the Jews, which have been very popular. It's the oldest commentary, therefore, on the Parsha Sashavua. Dr. Belkin, remember anybody remember him from YU? He says he, he was a Greek scholar. And at the time he died, he was, they were putting out, uh, a, instead of the art school at the bottom of the English, they're going to have Josephus and Philo in the Parsha of the Week. Which would be interesting. No one's done it till today. Do you get what I'm saying? Josephus tells the story of Noah and the flood. Josephus talks about how they built the Mishkan in this week's Parsha. Josephus talks about the Eglazov. It's always a little, you know, like that. So it's actually very interesting. Sometimes he shares uh, Midrashim, which we find in Chazal. Sometimes he tells Midrashim what we do, we do not find in Chazal. What does that mean? Is he making it up? Or does, as Louis Ginsburg argued long ago, does he represent a lost Chazal that somehow or other didn't make it to the other Midrashim? It's just kind of cute. Uh, Professor Feldman from YU has made a career, among other things, he's a brilliant person, of just writing an article, Josephus on the Beis HaMikdash, right? Josephus on Avraham, Josephus on Yitzhak, Josephus on Joseph and Potiphar's wife, because you can do it, right? Now, he just did it to present the story of the, of the Bible to, to, to non-Jewish readers, but therefore it's the oldest commentary, and it's clear his purpose is to show how good Judaism is. We don't hide our, lie, uh, our, our bad things. We don't you know, hide about King David and Bathsheba. You, you understand? We're not like you Greeks. We tell the truth. It's the only continuous history of the Jewish people and the only work we have that carries the story past Nehemiah because the Bible, the Torah, takes you all the way up to Ezra Nehemiah, not past that. Uh, there's no other Josephus would emerge to write the, Jewish history, the history of the Jewish people uh, ever up to the you know, past year 70, which is why all, until the 1800s, there is no such thing as a history of the Jewish people. Antiquities became a super classic among Christians, and until today they only know up to 70 AD, which is when the Jews disappear from history or ought to have disappeared. If you remember Professor Toynbee over here, uh, he told the Judaism is a fossil of civilization, because after all, everybody knows, the Jews is up to Josephus, and then when the temple is destroyed, Jesus takes over the Christians, and then the Jews can leave. Thank you very much. You've played your role. And if some of them stubbornly consist, insist on surviving all the rest of it, it's like, you know, leftover, as I say before, from some, uh, you know, nut group and all the rest of it. Aye, the Jews win the Nobel Prize. That's a problem. But <laughs> they, they continue to be some little insignificant group, which gets people like Toynbee very angry when the Jews of the chutzpah to dispossess the Palestinians and establish a modern state of Israel, which he says the state of Israel is totally legitimate, and it, only, and it took, um, if you move to the next one, it was, it, it was a famous debate with Yaakov Herzog when he's the uh, ambassador to Israel. I hope to do this next year. You can find it all on YouTube now. It was a debate they have in the synagogue, I believe, in, in Montreal or Toronto in 1962, and uh, he knew Josephus, he knows the Gemara too. So he was a, so he was a big Talmud Chacham as well as an ambassador, a very rare combination, and it's quite uh, interesting uh, back and forth that they have at, at each other. And in, in other words, guess what? There is a history past uh, Josephus. The huge gap in understanding what Judaism is between Gentiles and Jews uh, remains today. A few years later, Josephus wrote his third and final book. It's uh, against Appian. Appian was a big mumser. He was a high school Greek teacher. And in in um, in, in uh, Alexandria in Egypt, um, he cop- he hates the Jews. He uses the Egyptian chronicles to tell their version of the Tzitzis Mitzrayim story. He talks about the blood libel that the Jews every year get together and kill somebody for the blood. Uh, he says Shabbos comes from the Jewish word for syphilis. You understand? Because the, when they left Egypt, they got these disgusting 
shabosos, bubos, you know, things like this, the, the, um, eruptions on the, on the skin. Uh, I mean, that's a nice idea of Shabbos, you know. Uh, Josephus couldn't stand this, but I'll tell you something. What do regular Jews do? We're just not government, so we keep, you know, we keep going on. He lived in Rome. He dealt with non-Jews all the time. It bothered him, and he said, I'm going to write a book to smite him hip and thigh. I'm going to call him out on everything. By the time he wrote it, Appian was dead, but the book got circulation. Appian is a liar. God actually made fun of him. He mocked circumcision, but in his middle years he developed a syphilitic infection which required circumcision. And, and as any MD will tell you, circumcision will cure that kind of problem. And therefore Appian died in agony. You know, it was the wrong kind of medicine. And therefore God punished him. You know, the book is full of all that stuff. You Greeks are continual liars. I'll show you the anachronisms that fall in the Greek writings. I'll show you the uh, fantasies that fall in the Greek writings. Greeks are notorious for always being full baloney ever since day one. We Jews have a continual sober and, uh, and believable narrative. From all the, we don't hide our, our, our faults, but on the other hand, you know, uh, you can see the, the cogency of our, of our business. Um, boy, he's against, I can tell you, he's against the Greek. They're a drag, you know. Uh, not us. Okay, look what he says over here. Uh, but this is what he wrote about <laughs> Appian, you know, <laughs> when he died in agony. But let's move on. Near the end. Uh, now move on. There we go. If we don't, he says, we don't have an innumerable number of books disagreeing and contradicting as the Greeks have. We have only 22 books, meaning the Torah, the Tanakh. Same records of all past times, justly believed the divine, five belong to Moses, and so on and so forth, right? It is true, our history has been written, Artaxerxes very particularly. Our later history is not written very well. We only have the Apocrypha, but basically our purpose of telling history is to enforce the, 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 the uh, following of the divine doctrines among us, and it works because we Jews are still here today. Okay, so the point is that he goes out, and I'm near the end, as Josephus the Id, right? He came out fighting uh, whatever he had been before. Uh, even then it's arguable, but he comes out saying, the Jews are up, the Greeks are down, I'm writing in Rome, and I don't care what anybody has to say about it. Okay, uh, so in conclusion, we're looking at a conflicted person living in very difficult times, trying to make sense out of everything. He's a natural historian, because you can tell the way he writes, but he only resorted to history, starting from the beginning and working his way through cause and effect, in an unusual circumstances, circumstance that he lived in a crazy way. He was a Jew living by himself in Rome. Very few other Jews there where he lived. He lived in a non-Jewish neighborhood. If he had not lived a weird solipsistic existence among the destroyers of his temple, he would never have devoted decades to historical research and writing. And that is why he had no successors until the 19th century. And that's kind of weird about the Jews. But we ignore history, perhaps wisely, right? Perhaps. But uh, Josephus stands out as, as unique. The only exception is one guy in the Italian Renaissance, and that is someone I will do next time. Not next week. I'm not here next week. I'm going to be at uh, Nair Tumid. If anybody wants the details, there's the, uh, the uh, flyer. Uh, Shul's having some kind of 16th night, and I agreed to them. To, so I, what I think I'm going to end up talking about is Baltimore Jewry in the 1960s. Let's have some good Lush and horror over here. And, <laughs> okay, and about uh, synagogues come, uh, come and gone. So that you can consider to be a Falstaffian moment in, in, in our progression of tragedies. Hopefully in two weeks, Mirza Shem will be here.
And we'll talk about Azari de Rossi, who again is an extremely unusual uh, rabbi, interest in history in the middle of the Renaissance, which makes him extremely weird. Have a good Purim. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.